Chapters 34 and 35 of Beasts, Men, and Gods. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Beasts, Men, and Gods by Ferdinand Ossendowski. Chapter 34 The Horror of War. At dawn of the following morning, they led up the splendid white camel for me, and we moved away. My company consisted of the two Cossacks, two Mongol soldiers, and one Lama with two packed camels carrying the tent and food. I still apprehended that the Baron had it in mind not to dispose of me before my friends there in Van Cure, but to prepare this journey for me under the guise of which it would be so easy to do away with me by the road. A bullet in the back, and all would be finished." Consequently, I was momentarily ready to draw my revolver and defend myself. I took care all the time to have the Cossacks either ahead of me or at the side. About noon we heard the distant honk of a motor-car, and soon saw Baron Ungern whizzing by us at full speed. With him were two adjutants and Prince Deitschen Van. The Baron greeted me very kindly and shouted, "'Shall see you again in Urga!' "'Ah!' I thought." Evidently I shall reach Urga. So I can be at ease during my trip, and in Urga I have many friends besides the presence there of the bold Polish soldiers whom I had worked with in Uliasatai, and who would outdistance me in this journey. After meeting with the Baron, my Cossacks became very attentive to me, and sought to distract me with stories. They told me about their very severe struggles with the Bolsheviki in Transbalkalia and Mongolia, about the battle with the Chinese near Urga, about finding communistic passports on several Chinese soldiers from Moscow, about the bravery of Baron Ungern, and how he would sit at the campfire smoking and drinking tea, right on the battle line, without ever being touched by a bullet. At one fight, seventy-four bullets entered his overcoat, saddle, and the boxes by his side, and again left him untouched." This is one of the reasons for his great influence over the Mongols. They related how, before the battle, he had made a reconnaissance in Urga with only one Cossack, and on his way back had killed a Chinese officer and two soldiers with his bamboo stick or tashur, how he had no outfit save one change of linen and one extra pair of boots, how he was always calm and jovial in battle, and severe and morose in the rare days of peace and how he was everywhere his soldiers were fighting. I told them, in turn, of my escape from Siberia, and with chatting thus the day slipped by very quickly. Our camels trotted all the time, so that instead of the ordinary eighteen to twenty miles per day, we made nearly fifty. My mount was the fastest of them all. He was a huge white animal with a splendid thick mane, and had been presented to Baron Ungern by some prince of Inner Mongolia, with two black sables tied on the bridle. He was a calm, strong, bold giant of the desert, on whose back I felt myself as though perched on the tower of a building. Beyond the Orkhan River we came across the first dead body of a Chinese soldier, which lay face up and arms outstretched right in the middle of the road. When we had crossed the Burgut Mountains, we entered the Tola River Valley, further up which Urga is located. The road was strewn with the overcoats, shirts, boots, 
caps and kettles which the Chinese had thrown away in their flight, and marked by many of their dead. Further on the road crossed a morass, where on either side lay great mounds of the dead bodies of men, horses, and camels with broken carts and military debris of every sort. Here the Tibetans of Baron Ungern had cut up the escaping Chinese baggage transport, and it was a strange and gloomy contrast to see the piles of dead besides the effervescing, awakening life of spring. In every pool wild ducks of different kinds floated about. In the high grass the cranes performed their weird dance of courtship. On the lakes great flocks of swans and geese were swimming. Through the swampy places, like spots of light, moved the brilliantly coloured pairs of the Mongolian sacred bird, the turpan, or lama goose. On the higher dry places flocks of wild turkey gambled and fought as they fed. Flocks of the salga partridge whistled by, while on the mountainside not far away the wolves lay basking and turning in the lazy warmth of the sun, whining and occasionally barking like playful dogs. Nature knows only life. Death is for her but an episode whose traces she rubs out with sand and snow, or ornaments with luxuriant greenery and brightly coloured bushes and flowers. What matters it to nature if a mother at Chefu or on the banks of the Yangtze offers her a bowl of rice with burning incense at some shrine, and prays for the return of her son that has fallen unknown for all time on the plains along the Tola, where his bones will dry beneath the rays of nature's dissipating fire, and be scattered by her winds over the sands of the prairie? It is splendid, this indifference of nature to death, and her greediness for life. On the fourth day we made the shores of the Tola well after nightfall. We could not find the regular ford, and I forced my camel to enter the stream in the attempt to make a crossing without guidance. Very fortunately I found a shallow, though somewhat miry, place, and we got over all right. This is something to be thankful for in fording a river with a camel, because when your mount finds the water too deep, coming up around his neck, he does not strike out and swim like a horse will do, but just rolls over on his side and floats, which is vastly inconvenient for his rider. Down by the river we pegged our tent. Fifteen miles further on we crossed a battlefield, where the third great battle for the independence of Mongolia had been fought. Here the troops of Baron Ungern clashed with six thousand Chinese, moving down from Kiachta to the aid of Urga. The Chinese were completely defeated, and four thousand prisoners taken. However, these surrendered Chinese tried to escape during the night. Baron Ungern sent the Transbaikal Cossacks and Tibetans in pursuit of them, and it was their work which we saw on this field of death. There were still about fifteen hundred unburied, and as many more interred, according to the statements of our Cossacks, who had participated in this battle. The killed showed terrible sword wounds. Everywhere equipment and other debris were scattered about. The Mongols with their herds moved away from the neighbourhood, and their place was taken by the wolves which hid behind every stone and in every ditch as we passed. Packs of dogs that had become wild fought with the wolves over their prey. At last we left this place of carnage to the cursed god of war. Soon we approached a shallow, rapid stream, 
where the Mongols slipped from their camels, took off their caps, and began drinking. It was a sacred stream which passed beside the abode of the living Buddha. From this winding valley we suddenly turned into another, where a great mountain ridge, covered with dark, dense forests, loomed up before us. "'Holy Bagdu Ol!' exclaimed the Lama. "'The abode of the gods which guard our living Buddha!' Bagdu Ol is the huge knot which ties together here three mountain chains, Gagil from the southwest, Gangin from the south, and Huntu from the north. This mountain covered with virgin forest is the property of the living Buddha. The forests are full of nearly all the varieties of animals found in Mongolia, but hunting is not allowed. Any Mongol violating this law is condemned to death, while foreigners are deported. Crossing the Bagdu Ol is forbidden under penalty of death. This command was transgressed by only one man, Baron Ungern, who crossed the mountain with fifty Cossacks, penetrated to the palace of the living Buddha, where the pontiff of Urga was being held under arrest by the Chinese, and stole him. End of chapter 34 Chapter 35 In the City of Living Gods of 30,000 Buddhas and 60,000 Monks At last before our eyes the abode of the living Buddha, at the foot of Bagdu Ol, behind white walls, rose a white Tibetan building covered with greenish-blue tiles that glittered under the sunshine. It was richly set among groves of trees dotted here and there with the fantastic roofs of shrines and small palaces, while further from the mountain it was connected by a long wooden bridge across the Tola with the city of monks, sacred and revered throughout all the east as Ta Kure or Urga. Here, besides the living Buddha, live whole throngs of secondary miracle workers, prophets, sorcerers, and wonderful doctors. All these people have divine origin, and are honoured as living gods. At the left on the high plateau stands an old monastery with a huge, dark red tower, which is known as the Temple Lama City, containing a gigantic bronze gilded statue of Buddha sitting on the golden flower of the lotus. Tens of smaller temples, shrines, oboe, open altars, towers for astrology, and the grey city of the lamas, consisting of single-storied houses and yurtas, where about sixty thousand monks of all ages and ranks dwell. Schools, sacred archives and libraries, the houses of Bandi, and the inns for the honoured guests from China, Tibet, and the lands of the Buryat and Kalmuk. Down below the monastery is the foreign settlement, where the Russian, foreign and richest Chinese merchants live, and where the multicoloured and crowded Oriental bazaar carries forward its bustling life. A kilometre away the greyish enclosure of Mai Machen surrounds the remaining Chinese trading establishments, while farther on one sees a long row of Russian private houses, a hospital, church, prison, and last of all, the awkward, four-storied, red-brick building that was formerly the Russian consulate. We were already within a short distance of the monastery, when I noticed several Mongol soldiers in the mouth of a ravine nearby, dragging back and concealing in the ravine three dead bodies. "'What are they doing?' I asked. The Cossacks only smiled without answering. Suddenly they straightened up with a sharp salute, 
Out of the ravine came a small, stocky Mongolian pony with a short man in the saddle. As he passed us, I noticed the epaulets of a colonel and the green cap with a visor. He examined me with cold, colourless eyes from under dense brows. As he went on ahead, he took off his cap and wiped the perspiration from his bald head. My eyes were struck by the strange undulating line of his skull. It was the man with the head like a saddle, against whom I had been warned by the old fortune-teller at the last Urtan outside Van Cure. "'Who is this officer?' I inquired. Although he was already quite a distance in front of us, the Cossacks whispered, "'Colonel Sepilov, Commandant of Urga City!' "'Colonel Sepilov, the darkest person on the canvas of Mongolian events. Formerly a mechanician, afterwards a gendarme, he had gained quick promotion under the Tsar's regime. He was always nervously jerking and wriggling his body, and talking ceaselessly, making most unattractive sounds in his throat, and sputtering with saliva all over his lips, his whole face often contracted with spasms. He was mad, and Baron Ungern twice appointed a commission of surgeons to examine him, and ordered him to rest in the hope he could rid the man of his evil genius. Undoubtedly Sepilov was a sadist. I heard afterwards that he himself executed the condemned people, joking and singing as he did his work. Dark, terrifying tales were current about him in Urga. He was a bloodhound, fastening his victims with the jaws of death. All the glory of the cruelty of Baron Ungern belonged to Sepilov. Afterwards Baron Ungern once told me in Urga that this Sepilov annoyed him, and that Sepilov could kill him just as well as others. Baron Ungern feared Sepilov, not as a man, but dominated by his own superstition, because Sepilov had found in Transbaikalia a witch-doctor who predicted the death of the baron if he dismissed Sepilov. Sepilov knew no pardon for Bolshevik, nor for anyone connected with the Bolsheviki in any way. The reason for his vengeful spirit was that the Bolsheviki had tortured him in prison, and after his escape, had killed all his family. He was now taking his revenge. I put up with a Russian firm, and was at once visited by my associates from Uliasatai, who greeted me with great joy, because they had been much exercised about the events in Van Curie and Zain Shabi. When I had bathed and spruced up, I went out with them on the street. We entered the bazaar. The whole market was crowded. To the lively coloured groups of men buying, selling, and shouting their wares, the bright streamers of Chinese cloth, the strings of pearls, the earrings and bracelets, gave an air of endless festivity. While on another side buyers were feeling of live sheep to see whether they were fat or not, the butcher was cutting great pieces of mutton from the hanging carcasses, and everywhere these sons of the plain were joking and jesting. The Mongolian women in their huge coiffures and heavy silver caps, like saucers on their heads, were admiring the variegated silk ribbons and long chains of coral beads. An imposing big Mongol attentively examined a small herd of splendid horses, and bargained with the Mongol Sahashin, or owner of the horses. A skinny, quick, black Tibetan, who had come to Urga to pray to the living Buddha, or maybe, with a secret message from the other god in Lhasa, squatted and bargained for an image of the lotus Buddha carved in agate. 
In another corner a big crowd of Mongols and Buryats had collected, and surrounded a Chinese merchant selling finely painted snuff-bottles of glass, crystal, porcelain, amethyst, jade, agate, and nephrite, for one of which made of a greenish-milky nephrite with regular brown veins running through it, and carved with a dragon winding itself around a bevy of young damsels, the merchant was demanding of his Mongol inquirers ten young oxen. And everywhere Buryats in their long red coats and small red caps embroidered with gold helped the Tartars in black overcoats and black velvet caps, on the back of their heads, to weave the pattern of this oriental human tapestry. Lamas formed the common background for it all, as they wandered about in their yellow and red robes, with capes picturesquely thrown over their shoulders, and caps of many forms, some like yellow mushrooms, others like the red Phrygian bonnets or old Greek helmets in red. They mingled with the crowd, chatting serenely and counting their rosaries, telling fortunes for those who would hear, but chiefly searching out the rich Mongols, whom they could cure or exploit by fortune-telling, predictions, or other mysteries of a city of sixty thousand lamas. Simultaneously, religious and political espionage was being carried out. Just at this time many Mongols were arriving from Inner Mongolia, and they were continuously surrounded by an invisible but numerous network of watching lamas. Over the buildings around floated the Russian, Chinese, and Mongolian national flags, with a single one of the stars and stripes, above a small shop in the market, while over the nearby tents and yurtas streamed the ribbons, the squares, the circles and triangles of the princes and private persons afflicted or dying from smallpox and leprosy. All were mingled and mixed in one bright mass, strongly lighted by the sun. Occasionally one saw the soldiers of Baron Ungern rushing about in long blue coats, Mongols and Tibetans in red coats with yellow epaulets, bearing the swastika of Genghis Khan and the initials of the living Buddha and Chinese soldiers from their detachment in the Mongolian army. After the defeat of the Chinese army, two thousand of these braves petitioned the living Buddha to enlist them in his legions, swearing fealty and faith to him. They were accepted, and formed into two regiments bearing the old Chinese silver dragons on their caps and shoulders. As we crossed this market, from around a corner came a big motor-car with the roar of a siren, there was Baron Ungern in the yellow silk Mongolian coat with a blue girdle. He was going very fast, but recognized me at once, stopping and getting out to invite me to go with him to his yurta. The Baron lived in a small, simply arranged yurta, set up in the courtyard of a Chinese hong. He had his headquarters in two other yurtas nearby, while his servants occupied one of the Chinese Fang Tzu. When I reminded him of his promise to help me to reach the open ports, the general looked at me with his bright eyes and spoke in French. "'My work here is coming to an end. In nine days I shall begin the war with the Bolsheviki, and shall go into the Transbaikal. I beg that you will spend this time here. For many years I have lived without civilized society. I am alone with my thoughts, and I would like to have you know them.' speaking with me not as the bloody mad baron, as my enemies call me, nor as the severe grandfather, which my officers and soldiers call me, but as an ordinary man who has sought much, and has suffered even more. The baron reflected for some minutes, 
and then continued, "'I have thought about the further trip of your group, and I shall arrange everything for you, but I ask you to remain here these nine days.' What was I to do? I agreed. The Baron shook my hand warmly and ordered tea. End of chapter.